Welcome to Brand Story Inc. I'm your host, Jay Sharman. Every week we sit down with smart folks to talk about innovative ways they are creating content to connect with their audiences. I'd like to say every company can be a media company, and this conversation hopefully helps you understand why. Welcome back to Brand Story Inc., listeners, and welcome to season three of our podcast. We're excited to kick things off with Randy Frisch, the best-selling author of F Content Marketing, F as in the four-letter swear word, content marketing, a book dedicated to the content user experience. But before we go into Randy's bio, a quick shout-out to one of our listeners, Colin Gu, a student at Lake Forest High School in Lake Forest, Illinois, who's a weekly listener and recently created a hand drawing of my face as a tribute to the show. It's remarkable other than the subject matter of the drawing, but I think I've officially made it. Thank you, Colin, for the drawing and, and all you do. In a moment, you'll hear from Randy Frisch, the CMO and co-founder of Uberflip, a content experience platform that empowers marketers to create content experience at every stage of the buyer's journey. He has defined and led this movement, prompting marketers to think beyond content creation and put their customers first by focusing on the experience. This movement has fueled an annual conference called Connex, the content experience, brings together 750 plus passionate marketers, and he has a North American-wide Connex tour. Randy's also the host of the Marketer's Journey podcast. He was named one of the top 50 fearless marketers in the world by Marketo and is the best-selling author of the aforementioned F Content Marketing. So want to make a note that the book link, the drawing, contact information for Randy will all be in the show notes, which you can find at teamworksmedia.com on our content hub. And with that, let's jump in. Well, Randy, welcome to the show. Awesome, Jay. I can't uh, wait to dive in here. Well, thanks, man. Let's start with the origin story. Uh, Fuck content marketing, while a catchy title isn't exactly a middle finger to the content marketing industry, but seems like more of a rather a call to action for improvement. Explain the impetus for this book. Yeah, sure. And first off, I love being on any podcast where you're comfortable to drop the (laughs) F-bomb. That's not an easy thing to do. And uh, even, even getting to the point of having this book was scary for me because you know, throwing that f bomb. I mean, my kids got to see this book when it arrived, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a tricky message when we've got a swear jar at home. But <laughs> the the reality is, it took a lot of time to convince a lot of people. Even even my team, when I wrote this as a blog post a couple of years before writing the book, hmm. it took months to get them on side for me to publish this. And once I did, they started to realize that I wasn't telling content marketers to f off. I wasn't saying the content marketing wasn't valid. In fact. I love the definition of content marketing by my friends over at Content Marketing Institute. Mm-hmm. It's more what it became, and it's the reality of, of data that I found well writing the book that you know seventy percent plus of content we create never gets used, mm-hmm. and that's that's a really scary stat. And that's really what I was getting at was this idea that you know if we're going to put all this effort into creating content, which is not easy, we better use it, otherwise, effort. And that was the mindset that once my own team started to understand that, when I went to actually write the book, as much as I had to convince them to publish the blog post, they had to convince me to drop the F-bomb on the cover of what huh. became an Amazon bestseller. Huh. You know, to that point, I think one of the foundational pieces of everything you write about is the content experience. And your siren ringing thesis is for content marketers to focus on an improved content experience. Can you define what a content experience is from your perspective before we jump in. 
Absolutely. So, and, and you hit it there. I mean, if I just jumped in and tried to tell you the importance of content experience without giving you the context to why we need this, uh, you know, it'd be out of nowhere. And that's why it's important to start by understanding what content marketing is about. It's about, as we just said, creating great content. But then what we want to do is ultimately make sure that that content is leveraged in our organization. And when I say leveraged in our organization, we're talking about not just marketing activities at the top of funnel, but account-based marketing activities, bottom of the funnel sales, and also customer advocacy. At every stage, content is pulsing through our organization. Mm -hmm. And the idea of content experience is how do we ensure that people consume that in a way that is both pleasing for the audience and helps the marketer or the sales rep or the customer success rep actually guide someone through that buyer journey. So to do that, the mindset around content experience is how will someone engage in your content? And the, the three areas that I talk about most often when we look at content experience is the environment, the structure, and the way we ultimately get people to engage through this. So Jay, this comes back to your question, which is what, how do we define content experience in the first place? And for me, content experience is ultimately about how do we get someone to engage? So let's take a step back and, and think about the things that lead to that element of engagement. The first one is the environment in which that content is living. Now, it's one thing to create great content, but if we're reading it within or watching it as a video within a terrible experience, a terrible viewer, player, whatever you may be engaging in, then it's, it's going to ruin that experience for us altogether. So it's thinking about that UI that that customer goes through when they engage, mm -hmm. uh, really ensuring that it's fluid and that it's working on any type of device, mobile, desktop, whatnot. Another important element, though, and, and I think even more sometimes, is the element of structure. And, and by structure, I'm not talking about how we structure a blog post. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically. I'm talking about how we structure our content as a whole. How does one piece of content flow to the next? This is no different than thinking about Netflix. Yep. How do they get me to watch Stranger Things and then jump to another series right after? It's their ability to show relevance between two different assets. Mm -hmm. And that's where structure is really important, again, to creating that engagement is the last step. The engagement is the more pages of content I engage with, the more trust and building of relationship I have with that brand at the end of the day. And that's really what we're out to accomplish. At some point, it's not just about getting to that next piece of content. It may be getting to learn about your product. It may be about engaging in a requested demo to understand how your product works or actually make that purchase at the end of the day. You know, two things that kind of jumped out in, you, in, in the book and, and you came out of the gate with it were customization and personalization, both as kind of, and you, you alluded to those um, tenants just now with, you know, the Netflix, but in the book, I think you have a story about how you, like so many of us did back in the eighties, were making like mixtapes for a loved one, right? Like the old pause, <laughs> play, record, and listen to the top nine at nine, whatever it was. And then you contrast that with your son's experience of how his quote unquote mixtapes today are, you know, using Spotify's brilliant uh, interface and the ability to kind of like not only customize very easily, but also serve up algorithmic, you know, here's what you might like this type of a, an approach. Explain how customization and personalization are showing up in winning content experiences. Absolutely. I, I think we can learn a lot from consumer apps that we all use every day. 
I already referenced Netflix. Spotify is another great one. And, and you know, if you open up your Spotify app now, I mean, for all I know, people that listen to this mm-hmm. on a Spotify uh, podcast, uh, so don't leave this podcast. And you go to that home, they actually have a section that's called the Made For You, yep. right? It, you know, mine actually says Made For Randy first. And mm-hmm. how cool is that, right? Yep. Like, it, you know, like you said, way back when I was 13 years old and I was, you know, cutting mixtapes for, you know, girls I had a crush on. I mean, that was big effort. Spotify is doing this for hundreds of millions of people now, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's no one sitting there trying to understand me in too much detail other than leveraging data to do so. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's that element of personalization that we are all coming to expect from a brand. Now, that's a huge shift. Uh, you know, if you go back, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, if any of us got an email from some big company, we'd be like, oh my God, how did they know my name? This mm-hmm. huge brand. Maybe it was Blockbuster. It was like, I know you're Randy. And you're like, how do you know I'm Randy? This is so cool. Um, you know, and you, Jay, would get your own. And you'd be like, oh, this is so cool. They got me too. Now we've caught on. We understand how marketing works. We understand how mail merges work. Even if we're not a marketer, we know how this all works. In fact, now often when we get that first email, we're like, did I really sign up for this? How did right. they get my name? Right. Um, you know, it, there's been a shift in terms of, are you greeting me in a way that makes me feel like you understand me? Now, interestingly, since I I wrote the book, I did some research. This was a little over a year ago and uh, went out and asked the exact same questions to two groups. One group were marketers and one group were buyers. And we asked a variety of different questions. One of the questions we asked was, what does it mean to deliver personalization or receive personalization? Now, when we asked marketers, their top three answers of what personalization meant to them was that they knew the buyer's name, they knew the buyer's company, and third, they knew the buyer's job title, Mm. right? If they could merge that into the communication, they felt like they were delivering personalization. We asked, as I said, though, the same question to buyers. The number one item for buyers, I'll come back to the number one item. The number two item was they know my name. Number three was that they know my job title. So there was some consistency there. But the number one I told you was they can solve my problems. They demonstrate the ability to solve my problems. And it's interesting because that to us on the surface is not personalization, but that was one of the checklist items in the survey that we did. And that was the most highly valued element in terms of personalization. We bring this back to Spotify. You know, imagine logging into Spotify and having to search across, you know, I don't know how many, you know, music and podcasts, et cetera, they have. I mean, it's millions of assets. Imagine having to search by keyword. I mean, it would take you absolutely forever. That's no different than a lot of us jumping onto a company's website and saying, I'm going to go find a blog post or an ebook that's going to help me understand what this company does. Many companies have thousands, if not tens of thousands of pieces of content when you get into large organizations. And that's a lot of people, a lot of content for people to digest. What we need to start to do a better job of is creating those made for you playlists that Spotify does in our marketing, right? 
Now, the, the interesting thing is when I say that often, people get overwhelmed, right? They say mm-hmm. something like, well, you know, I've got 2,000 accounts that I'm trying to sell to. You expect me to go and create, you know, 2,000 unique pieces of content times however many pieces I need for them? Like, that's not possible. And, and my answer is, no, 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 no. Let's, let's go back to Spotify, right? Yep. That playlist that's made for me has no original content. Like, I wish right. ACDC wrote a track for me, <laughs> but that's not happening here, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, the, the reality is, at the end of the day, they're just surfacing what is most relevant to me. They are, as that buyer said, showing that they can solve my problems. Yep. Spotify is solving my problem by giving me something that I'm going to love based on the other music I've listened to. Netflix does the same. Amazon does the same. Even Peloton, you know, I've got the Peloton tread. I jump on there. They know the yep, they know the instructors too. I like. They know the music I like to run to, and they make recommendations accordingly. That is where we need to get to in marketing. Yeah, you know, you bring up a couple points, and I think uh, I want to going to pivot here into your company in a second since you guys address some of this. But the thing that fascinates me is that how low the bar is in 2022 for personalization and customization, and yet how many people think they're doing personalization and customization. I'm sure your email inbox looks something somewhat like mine, which is like several hundred emails a day, no exaggeration, with maybe 10 to 15% of those being actual humans trying to communicate with me. Another, you know, 20% of that is probably things I've opted into, right? Newsletters, subscriptions, things that I sign up for. And then the bulk of it, the majority are unsolicited emails that are trying to pretend to be uh, personalized. And you can tell by just the little carrots in the email that it comes through a LinkedIn mail merge or some other program. It's just like, and it's this cheeky, you know, oh, you sent this highly personalized joke to make it look like you're trying to connect. It's like, no, like we know what you're doing. Stop. You know, like it's so obvious that this is a mass email that's trying to be customized that's bringing no value other than you trying to like either pay me for coffee to get on a phone call or whatever you know, like legalized bribery and then then you have these other things like uh i've got three high school age daughters one of whom's um on the college search and i got a mass email obviously but it was like such a differentiator it was the only call it was case western it was the only college of the 14 that she's applying to, where I, the dad, got a note. Hey, your daughter applied, thanks. That's great. Here's the upcoming schedule of timeline and events of what's going on. Here's our process. Like, again, the the point being, there was nothing in that email that couldn't have been done mass-wise, but no one else is doing it, like one for 14. And so I think there's this element of relative to your competition, it provided value. I knew it was a mass email, but I was still favorable towards Case Western because they're like, oh my God, look, they care about me. I'm the dad, right? Like, and no one else is doing that. And so, you know, I, I'm curious to get your take on kind of like where we are in the spectrum as content marketers on this personalization and customization for specifically for, for maybe B2B content. Sure. I, it's a great, I, I love the examples you gave and I love, you know, kudos to, to the university that did such a good job understanding you. I think the real opportunity we have as B2B marketers to break through is not just in the email copy, but it's in the supporting materials. Mm-hmm. It's in the content assets. And that is the content experience. I'll give you an inbox example that I had at one point. Um, 
I had an email from a vendor and it was actually, the email itself was quite personalized. I met this sales rep at an event. They referenced the event. They referenced the talk track at the event, uh, you know, from the keynote. And then what they did was they had a hyperlink and that hyperlink was here's a great video that you should watch that'll help you understand how we'll solve your problem. Mm. And I was like, you know what? So far, this guy's really taken some time to write me a personalized message. What we do. I'm like, I'm going to click on this link. So I click on the link and sure enough, it opens up a page on YouTube. And as soon as it does, I'm like, all right, this doesn't feel so personalized anymore, mm-hmm. right? Like this is a public video mm-hmm. that looked like it had, you know, 200 some odd views, not a ton, but enough that it's clear that, you know, enough people in this organization are sending people to this video. But I said, you know what, I'm going I'm to watch the video. And I started watching and I was half, you know, kind of half interested. And as I'm watching it, though, I kind of glance over to the right-hand side and we know that panel on YouTube with other recommended content. It wasn't this vendor's content being recommended at that point. It was highlights from last night's basketball game that I may be interested in, mm. right? And and that is that shift that happens in that moment, right? Yep. We are lost down other recommendations because Google's goal, YouTube rather, Google YouTube's uh, mm-hmm. goal is sell ad space. They just want me engaged on there with whatever is going to keep me on their channel. So this brand lost me in that moment. They lost me because number one, it wasn't personalized. Mm-hmm. Number two, as we as we go back, the environment was distracting. The structure was not set up to ensure that I would find the next piece of content after that. And overall, I lost engagement because I did not feel like they were there to solve my problems. Right? Yeah. This sales rep did everything he could though, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, his sales rep actually sent me a great personalized email. He, he only had one CTA. I hate those emails I get with like, click here, then here, then here. Yeah. You know, one CTA, click here. But it, it's not enough for us just to use the right channels. We need to ensure that we send someone to an engaging experience. That is what we try and do at Uberflip. Yeah, and, and you know, one thing that comes to mind, I. I talked and consulted with several folks in the higher ed space before and University of North Carolina School of Business I think they were out in front like maybe five years ago this was they were one of the first people to do it you know somebody gets in from say California right to your point they're not creating original content but what they are doing is pulling from their content library and saying and embedding videos into like a you know kind of a welcome kit which is like top 10 questions people from the west coast have about moving to North Carolina right like the content had been done kind of generically, but the endearment of we see you and we want to help you on your journey, right? Like, again, the bar is, the bar is pretty low, but I think I want to segue into Uberflip, which you're the chief marketing officer of, right? That's no surprise you wrote a book on the content experience, considering that your day job is the chief marketing officer of Uberflip, which is a content experience platform. Explain what Uberflip does to our audience. Absolutely. You know, Uberflip is there for marketers like me. I mean, I, I'm a marketer from my early days and, you know, where I struggled was getting uh, some of my ideas onto the web. I didn't know how to code. Um, even with, you know, uh, solutions like WordPress or if you're using something more advanced like Adobe Experience Manager, 
uh, you know, they weren't built for me as a marketer. They mm-hmm. were built for the web developer. Uh, and so I had all of these ideas, but I found it so such a struggle to get that content online, uh, to get it in front of people at the right time. And it, and it brought me back to the realization that we, we talked about earlier of why so much content doesn't get used. It's hard to reuse it. It's hard to resurface it in different instances. So what Uberflow does is it makes it possible for the marketer to actually grab the right content and put it in front of the right audience at the right time. So all the analogies that we've been kind of using you know, through the conversation today, the Netflix, the Spotify, we're doing that in a B2B sense. Mm-hmm. But we're doing so not where someone comes to some Uberflip app, your buyer, more so they come to your brand, they come to your website, or if you're engaging with them using a channel of certain choice, then we are that endpoint destination. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a framework that I often use you know, to explain where this fits into most modern day marketing. Um, a lot, a, a big way that I kind of rally our team is to think of our ability to engage a customer experience across three different steps. The first step is to identify the right buyer. The second step is to attract that buyer. And the third step is to engage that buyer. Now, a lot of us have really mastered those first two steps, the identify and the attract. Uh, you know, the identify is using intent, using first party data that we've gathered, using our, you know, and those are systems like our marketing automation platform, that could be a Marketo or an Eloqua type of platform. Uh, it's using intent platforms like Sixth Sense, Demand-Based, Rollworks, Terminus, uh, you know, and using those to understand who our buyer is. Once we know who the buyer is, then we got to grab their attention. Now we got to attract them. And that's the second stage. We do that, yeah, we've been doing that, you know, since Mad Men Day. Right? Like, mm-hmm. how do we get in front of our buyer on the fly? It's either email, it's ads, it's social, it's PR. Uh, you know, there's, you know, it's our sales team with their outreach. There's certain channels that we do where we try and grab people's attention. So when they get that email in their inbox, like we were talking about earlier, that is their way to attract us. Our decision to click on the link in the email is where we're now open to engaging with that brand. And when we engage in the, in the brand, that is the part that we talked about that should be more like Spotify, like Netflix, but often falls short. And in fact, this past year, I did some research together with Forrester. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we actually asked marketers how confident they were at each of those three buckets. And not surprising, a lot of marketers were very comfortable, over 70% of them were comfortable identifying the right buyers, over 60% were comfortable uh, to attract buyers with different channels, but only 11%, like a sad 11%, felt that they could engage buyers once they had their attention. And that's the part that I think is, is such an opportunity. Um, you know, we you know to to seize that opportunity, we need to focus on the experience, um, and it goes beyond the website. You know, in terms of how we show product literature, into how we you know build that relationship through the research that our buyers might be doing. It's interesting. I I, I started speaking uh, to Vistage, which is a national CEO group. Uh, global CEO group and you know small groups of 16 CEOs and it's it's pretty funny because I'm you and I are both in the marketing business so you walk into these rooms and they're all from different industries right um, and, and 
my presentations, a half-day presentation, it's on relationship content marketing, right? How to use the content to create one-to-one relationships. And I go in there and you start, I start polling people, like how many, what platforms you're on, what do you know? And it's, it's fascinating because I'm surprised less than 25% of the CEOs are even, are, are, I would say, are on one platform. And so it's one of those things when you're talking about from an organizational experience, there's friction, right? If it's not at the C-suite, if they don't understand some of these larger concepts, you're 11%, the C-suite understands, right? That's a huge gap. Like all these people doing all of this energy and 90, almost 90% of them say, we don't know what, how to engage them once we get them, right? I mean, that's a, that's a huge opportunity. Yeah, so, essentially what we're saying is we're, we're flushing a lot of money down the toilet. Yeah. Because think about how much money your organization is spending on data to understand right. your buyer and how much we're using on channels to go engage. Those are really the first two buckets that we talk about there. Identify and attract. Identify with data, attract with channels. You know, that's the majority of our marketing spend today. But what we continue to do is we say, well, like, I guess I got to just attract them again. I got them to this one piece of content. I got to go back and spend money to bring them back. And we kind of, you know, justify this with fancy buzzword terms like multi-touch attribution to talk about how many times it takes to get them over the, over the line. Mm-hmm. And I get it. That's true. Not everyone's ready to buy on their first visit. But if we can even bring them to engage in more than one asset, perhaps two, perhaps three, then we can shorten the cycle. We can reduce the customer acquisition costs. And to your point, you know, we can be much more profitable as an organization. You know, I'm curious, uh, maybe to bring it forward. Do you have a favorite before and after client story, Uberflip, to, to kind of illustrate the light of just how your product has uh, helped transform? A business. You know, I, I, I think I have so many, uh, so hard. It's like choosing between my three kids. Um, the, the reality here is I think everyone's use case is very different. I, you know, there's been a lot of really motivating use cases, even through the pandemic that we've gotten to witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work as an example with, uh, 3M, um, mm-hmm. 3M is, as many of us know, uh, make the N95 masks. Uh, and you know, when, when the pandemic started, you know, marketing for them was not about generating demand. I mean, there was no shortage of demand, <laughs> right. uh, but it was more about re-educating people, um, educating different groups. Uh, you know, one of the things that I was talking to the, you know, one of the marketing managers there was that they started to hear that, you know, because people were all in, in a, you know, stay at home, uh, fashion, you know, people were growing beards at rates that they had never heard before. Mm-hmm. So they had to create content on the fly, how to wear a mask in a safe environment where you have more facial hair, mm-hmm. right? Like these are little nuances mm-hmm. that they had to adapt. Very similarly, we get to work with Medtronic. Um, they they work in um, they, medical, medical devices. Medical devices, and one of them was ventilators. Again, not a demand issue. But overnight, one of the challenges that they, they had was they had these field sales reps who used to go into the hospitals to show how these ventilator products that were sold were working because they weren't used that often. So right. the clinicians would need a little bit of guidance. But overnight, they were told that these field reps could not go into the field because they wanted to limit traffic inside of hospitals. So they found ways to use content on a digital page 
surface, these are the relevant articles based on the products you've bought in your hospital. And in turn, that's what you're going to need from us. And here's a way to reach the person who usually comes who's sitting by a phone waiting for the call. So it was this, the way in which these companies were adapting, I just thought was so interesting in the speed at which they were doing yeah. stuff, right? You know, if you look at the pandemic, one of the things that I think it's, it's highlighted more than ever is the speed in which we need to be able to adapt our message to the market in terms of what our business does, how it can be used. So we've, I, I mean, we've got so many amazing customers and customer stories, but I, I, I think the really cool part about marketing is the ability to be relevant, right? That's a lot yeah. about what we've been talking about with personalization. You know, can you solve my problem? The ability for a company to do so when they've relied on certain messaging for years and that changes on a dime, I mean, that to me is really cool. Yeah, I mean, I think I want uh, on the home stretch here two more questions. One's a little bit off the reservation, but your perspective on this is is fascinating um, because you get an insight into so many different companies. And it's while you while Uberflip has a technological solution, right? That you're getting to see workflow wonders. You talk about the pandemic and in the content creation business. I know most listeners and most people that have come on have talked about. I mean, it's fascinating, right? We've had heads of major content brand content studios never meet their staff or came on board, right? Like virtually, like a whole new dynamic. And so I'm really curious to get your perspective on maybe some best practices that you're seeing in terms of the human factor of workflow, in terms of, you know, um, if you have a product like Uberflip, fantastic, right? You can customize, personalize, et cetera. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of moving parts with a lot of different people responsible for different pieces of the of the whole content marketing journey. What are you seeing from like the best in class content marketers from the human workflow? What are they doing that others aren't? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I'll share something that I did that was that was very hacky because um, I think so. we always like a hacky approach, right? So. At the beginning, you know, as I started to learn about some of the examples I told you, the 3M story, the Medtronic mm-hmm. story, a whole bunch of others, I realized that, you know, people were, people were dying for those examples, right, of how people yeah. were adapting, how they were going about that. But it was really tricky because marketers were running in circles. Like, no one had time to tell these stories. So I actually went out and I, I created a slide template to tell this story in under 10 minutes by interviewing the, uh, one of our customers. But I said, you know, no one's gonna wanna jump on and do a pre-call. So I very, I made a very basic Google form where they would have to answer in a certain number of words the different slides that I wanted them to help me tell a story. They would upload images of examples into this Google form and then I would be able to go and turn that into a deck, jump on, and we did all of this in under 30 minutes to record. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, we used some great other technology if you've ever used StreamYard. Uh, it's a really good, you know, live reporting uh, solution. Anyways, we were able to pull together, I, I think we now have something like 15 of these that we've recorded, um, of just different marketers talking about how they adapted with the way they identify, attract, engage. And that was the same framework that I used with my team that I spoke about earlier, uh, you know, that, that these people were, were able to, to relate to and walk people through. So I think it's about, you know, back to the question, we need to be aware of how little time people have. And the more we can turn, uh, create a framework and create a recipe, we can pump up content in a much more scalable way. 
Very cool. Last question for you. A uh, segment we have with every guest. It's called Bedside Book Stand. And as an author, I'm guessing you have quite a few books piled up on the nightstand. Share what you're, <laughs> share what you're reading. Uh, well, I've already finished this one, but I was, I was actually chatting with some of my very good uh, you know, elementary school friends. We every once in a while we recommend books to each other, and uh, it's Ride of a Lifetime. We were recommending. I had read it, and I got a couple of them to do do so. Uh, it's the story of Bob Iger, uh, who mm-hmm. was the CEO of Disney, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, it's, I, I think it's also interesting just anyone who's into content because uh, you know, really, he talks about valuing content within it, and. So it it informed his strategy that has made Disney, you know, even more successful since their acquisitions of Pixar and and Marvel and, uh, you know, launching Disney Plus and everything else that came with that. I I mean, it's a really well-told story of of how he made these deals happen and just the importance of, of the right content for people. Super cool. Randy Frisch from Uberflip. You can... Follow him on Twitter at Randy Frisch, F-R-I-S-C-H. In the show notes, we will link to both the book and Randy's LinkedIn. Uh, Randy, can't thank you enough for your time and sharing a breakdown of of the content experience of today and, and moving forward. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jay. Thanks for listening to Brand Story, Inc., We'll be back next week with another conversation digging into the ways companies are becoming like media companies. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give me a follow on Twitter at underscore Jay Sharman and on LinkedIn.